If you enjoy the Filmmakers Podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. The Podfacts Network! Hello and welcome to episode 281 of the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk... Filmmaking. From indie film to studio films and... Everything in between. How to get them made, how to make them, and how to try not to... Humbly fuck it up. In our very humbly <laughs> fuck it up opinion. <laughs> I am Giles Alderson. I am Dominic Noir. We are filmmakers, and we are delighted to welcome on this week's episode the fantastic director of Disney Pixar's Lightyear, Angus McLean. For those of you who don't know, Angus is a film director, he's an animator, he's a screenwriter, and he's done lots of voice work uh, for Pixar. He's directed the short films Burn E, Toy Story Toons, Small Fry, and the television special Toy Story of Terror. He has worked as an animator on every Pixar feature from A Bug's Life through to Toy Story 3. He also worked in the character development on Monsters, Inc. and The Incredibles. His work on The Incredibles gained him an Annie for outstanding achievement in character animation. He co-directed the film Finding Dory and this is his feature film directorial debut, Lightyear. It's a Toy Story spin-off. It's Lightyear. It's Buzz Bloody Lightyear. I'm Buzz. I'm buzzing. What's the buzz about this? <laughs> buzz to believe it. <laughs> Gosh, we had such a good chat with Angus. He was just brilliant. He was brilliant. He was so informative. He gave he said Giles Dom really good questions. Well, yeah. We don't get that very often. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. He, he talked about how he started out at Pixar as an intern. How he worked mm. his way through the art department, the story department, and how having Brad Bird as his Gandalf uh, was mm. absolutely inspirational for him. He also talked about his first foray into directing and how he was able to do a short connected with Toy Story. I love this as well, Dom. He talked about why it's really important to learn every aspect of filmmaking, how it helped him massively as a filmmaker and an animator and a story creator to learn from the ground up. I could say that, and that that's helped him massively in, in where he is now. When you've got Andrew Stanton around you, when you've got Brad Bird around you, these are the people who made the Incredibles, who made Toy Story, yeah. who made these films that are so ingrained in our history. And now yeah. suddenly Angus is, you know, he's worked with them for 25 years and now he's also a leading light with Lightyear mm. as well, which is... Light, leading yeah, light, yeah, no, yeah. I, that, yeah, it was there. It was there. He didn't need it to. Was there. It was, <laughs> I found this interesting as well. Why Buzz? What was so special mm. about Buzz Lightyear and the tone? How do you keep mm. the tone of the original but yet give it its own voice? Uh, so it isn't the same. And I think one of the most fascinating things was that it was a, a a personal story, you know, completely personal to his own long crusade into animation. Mm -hmm. And also creating such a dynamic leading character as, as Buzz and kind of really bringing him into his own as, a, as an original prequel story. And he has done that. I mean, me and you went to the VIP premiere screening, uh, though oh, yeah. it was at 11 a.m. and it was full of kids. So it was noisy screening, mm. that's for sure. Yep. I haven't done one of those in a while. <laughs> those with young children, I feel your yep. pain. Uh, popcorn is noisy. Kids mm. like to talk. And they do. <laughs> but it was still amazing, wasn't it? It was still beautiful. Yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah. 
And it's a beautiful film. It is out this Friday. Uh, I think the team behind this have done a really incredible job to bring Buzz to life in its own life form. Uh, I thought it was brilliant. Really, really cool film. We also talked about why it's important to be an expert in the genre you are making. So let's say you're making an action film. Well, understand action films. In Angus's case, he's making a thriller. So he really got to grips with the thriller genre. And he has a brilliant bit of advice for filmmakers in there and something called a bag of help. I think it's fascinating that he's he's basically taken, you know, Pixar has a very concise storytelling mechanism that they they sort of apply to to certain types of movies that they do and and he had to kind of almost go into uncharted territory that was a buzz lightyear little nod there yep to explore the, the you know the the real thriller action space that that he's kind of done in this film it's pioneering stuff for pixar and for buzz kind <laughs> <laughs> and also he was a lovely bloke as well he was really really nice and he enjoyed our ridiculous and sometimes overlong questions how are you Dom I'm pretty good yeah yeah, yeah. still alive that's good that helps so yeah it's been it's been a it's been a busy busy couple of months was in America nice film stuff doing filmy stuff good yep um, which was which is very exciting, but then that was straight into the unreason shoot with the Shakespeare sisters, uh, which was which was always tremendous fun. Which Giles did jump on, and then then it was like basically straight into Cannes, and and Cannes like a, a battleground of of long hot days in the sun and long hard liver punishing nights of of um, of parties and and networking you make it sound it's not a holiday yeah you well, you made it sound like a holiday it, well, it's not it's not though it's it's, it's really no, not it's it, not it's, um, no, no. i mean there, there are moments like i mean i, I was there for, for a while this time and I, and i did i did sort of try and pace myself because you can just blow yourself up mm. um, you know going going too hard for too long but it, it, it is you, you're always running around and you're, you're sort of juggling a lot of people that want to meet and, and a lot of different conflicting events and and it's um yeah it's it's a pretty intense uh, period of time so um yeah but i've been busy it's knackering can is knackering there's no question about it you've got to pace yourself you've got to prepare don't get too drunk at night otherwise you, you just can't survive it's too much you can see it sometimes in people when they've they've burnt burnt the candle too far at both ends and the next day that you're trying to have a conversation they're literally yeah. it's like zombies, zombies. Yeah. And, it, and it's not worth it it's, it's, it's like you're not you're not benefiting anyone because you're not actually able to have a conversation mm -hmm. So it is about it is about balance for sure. It is, and can is about the conversations. It was fascinating to watch people as the days went by, you know, just staring into middle distance and just drifting yeah. off. And, I've seen things, man. Uh, and you have to be on it because you could suddenly meet someone who goes, "Oh, tell me about your project." You have to be on. You have to be. So you it's, it's you can't treat it like a jolly. You have to treat it no. as a work event where you're allowed to have a bit of fun, you know. Um, not too much fun, but, but yeah, but fun in the right way. Exactly, exactly that. I came. Straight off the back of Cannes, knackered and went straight into doing this uh, Ralph Lauren shoot, uh, which was full on as well, full on really intense days and nights. It just didn't stop. It didn't let up. It's a fashion shoot, so it does. It, it's it's definitely all consuming. So yeah, I am absolutely battered. So it's nice to get a little little bit of a, a window now where we're prepping the next films. Yeah, it's gonna get my head back into those because you need to sometimes when you're doing other jobs or you're a cat. It's very difficult to focus on the 
the projects moving forward. So, and we're we're literally uh, weeks away from locking Three Day Millionaire, uh, the whole film, Ooh. so it'll be done in literally a couple of weeks. I'm super excited because uh, so many people at Cannes were asking for it, uh, and that's the good place to be. Showed them the trailer for Three Day Millionaire, and they were very excited. And now we're looking forward to showing them the film. So that's good. It's very exciting. I've never made an animation. I wouldn't even know where to begin. Well, I would. So don't. I won't. <laughs> it's not something that is on my bucket list. It's not something that I go, oh, no. I must do this. But I tell you what, it would be fascinating. That whole four year yeah. period. I think one question I did want to ask Angus that I, I didn't have, we didn't have too much time with him, was how do you keep the concentration for four or five? I mean, really, he's been working on this mm. for seven years, you know, from yeah. initial idea. And how do you, you know, when we're making a film, it's like, you get the stuff in the can but animation it takes much longer and I think that's something that I'd, I'd love to know at some point dangerous prolonged exposure to caffeine yes I imagine just things take ages it's like oh could you just punch in on that shot yeah no worries two weeks later hey have you punched in on that shot yeah still drawing the eyes <laughs> that, was, that was one of my favourite bits <laughs> when he had to like when he had to superimpose glasses onto a character throughout a whole film and then they told him they didn't want the glasses <laughs> anymore take all that off oh my god that's animation for if you. only it had 2020 hindsight. Hey, Dom! That's a it good is. one. We're there keeping is. that one in. <laughs> <laughs> also, a couple of shout outs this week going to Alejandro Montoya Marin, whose latest film, The Wrong Guy, is screening at the Dancers with Films Film Festival this Wednesday. June the 15th. If you are in LA or nearabouts or fancy going uh, to this festival, then please do go support Alejandro. He's a brilliant guy. His films that he's made so far have been incredible. I've seen the trailer for this one and it's brilliant. So if you're in LA, go to the Dancers with Films Film Festival uh, Wednesday, June the 15th and go and see The Wrong Guy. Link to that is in the show notes. Also, a friend of the podcast, Mark Hampton who I met recently in Cannes. What a lovely guy. He is starting his Kickstarter campaign for five cars. It's launched already and he would love some support. It's a low-budget, high-octane heist movie. It has a great twist in that the action all takes place in and around the five cars of the title. So, like I say, it's the brainchild of Mark Hampton, who's an actor and a filmmaker, and he's won awards as an actor and a director for his short films Town uh, versus Gown and Acceptance, both of which are available as rewards in the campaign. So he's looking to for equity, so anything, any spare change you have, even if you just retweet his latest tweet on uh, five cars, at Hammy Actor. <laughs> on Twitter just retweet that if nothing else but if you can support do support he's putting his own money into this as well and it's a really cool Kickstarter video link to that is in the show notes support if you can let's get to it I suppose yeah right this is the episode myself and Dom Lenoir chatting with the fantastic director primo host <laughs> the, with the primo host Dom we never Lamar. did the primo host thing did we no. we, never, we never did that no I, I, well, you, so you're saying you're primo host I, I'm not saying I'm primo host I, I think the, 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 the term was the term was floated around I would never self declare myself as the primo I host don't, I don't think anyone was floating that around but you I think you were floating around I'm pretty sure it was you that said uh, primo which means uh, prime in, in Italian so you've graduated from co-host to 
primo host? I mean, I'm not saying. I'm not saying. Right. No one else is. It was a conversation. Right. It was just a conversation. Just a general. So here I am. It was, it was you that coined the term, the primo host. <laughs> I don't know if it was about you. <laughs> whether, whether, whether it was. Well, it was a conversation with me. So. Well, yeah. here, here's, here's me <laughs> and primo host Dom Lamar <laughs> chatting with the fantastic <laughs> director, screenwriter, animator Angus McLean. He is the director of uh, Disney Pixar's Lightyear. Sit back, relax, enjoy this chat. It'll blow you away. Hey, Angus. Hello. How you doing? I'm good. You've had an amazing career. You know, your, your start, how it all happened, and leading up to Lightyear is is pretty incredible. Suppose the first question is, were you always fascinated by animation as an art form within filmmaking? Was that something that drew you into filmmaking in the first place? It's hard to say. I don't think that I was animation obsessed, and I think I was film obsessed. Mm. And... I really liked to draw and make things. And then when I was about 10, my uncle gave me a book. It was the Disney illusion of life first edition. And in the book, he, he inscribed, may all your cartooning dreams come true. And it literally was like a suggestion in a sense. It was like, Oh, animation. I hadn't really thought about that. Mm-hmm. So uh, I thought about being an animator, and at the same time, I, I you know, as I, I was in drama and I was in you know high school, I was, I was I was always designing sets and building. You know, I was doing a lot of industrial design type stuff, and and um, just just a lot of drawing, and and somehow animation seemed to combine all the acting and the drawing and the artwork and all that. And so when I went to art school and I was going to be an animator, or I thought about being an animator, I was also maybe maybe want to be a comic artist. Um, but ultimately it was uh, animation that won out. Which is really cool. What was the films that you, that inspired you a bit then? Cause you mentioned it was perhaps yeah. not animation at first. What were the films that made you, you know, really think, okay, you know, th- this is, this is cool. What were the early films you really loved? Well, Star Wars was the first movie I saw in the theater. Probably the first movie I can remember seeing. And I was three years old mm. and three Wow. Yeah. What was out there? It was, it was, yeah, it was, it was playing at a, it was playing at one theater uh, near me and it, it had already been out for about a year and it right. played in that same venue for 76 weeks. I believe. Wow. So, I saw it. so you had to see it. <laughs> yeah. You had to see it. And so we, I saw that and that really changed. It, it sounds dumb, but it really changed my life. But I found that was not uncommon for people of my age at, at, at Pixar. It was very similar. Pixar and ILM because there were a bunch of friends of a, a group of us that were about the same age working at both companies at the same time mm-hmm. back in the late nineties. Uh, and so after I saw that, I was like, Oh, I, I, everything kind of changed for me. Like I really wanted to draw star Wars, you know, make star Wars stuff, you know, um, I, uh, so like, and, and making things was always an important part of my childhood. My dad, um, uh, was a mechanical engineer and, and a sculptor. He's now retired, but he, um, we would make the, 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 the vehicles. So I, you know, we'd get the, the parents were students. And so we'd get like one figure and then I'd make all of the things for it. And that was just the, what I got used to doing as a kid, you'd make stuff. So then um, Star Wars is the first one, but then every year it seemed like there was another exciting sci-fi action film. So then I would say probably Empire Strikes Back was pretty huge. And then Raiders Lost Ark was pretty huge. E.T., uh, Return of the Jedi, 
you know, Ghostbusters, 85, uh, Back to the Future sort of maybe. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then Aliens was the next big, huge one. Right. Aliens really changed what I thought because it was like Star Wars, but it was like real or Star Wars was all fake. Like that yeah. wasn't really going to happen, but, but aliens could happen, which is kind of shows you my mindset at the time. Mm. So once I saw aliens, I was like, I, maybe I really want to make movies. This is a, and so we would I'd make movies with friends and we would kind of mess around just trying to make our own kind of stupid horror films or, or adventure pictures. And then, then I saw toy story when I was in college and I remember seeing it and then literally after the movie finished and going to a payphone and calling my parents and being like, this is what I want to do. I want to work at Pixar. Uh, so then I got a, I was working there within a year and a half, oddly. How did that happen? Because that is fascinating. Yeah. You, you finished your sort of design degree, if you like. And then it was, like you said, six months later, you're working for Pixar. Now, there's so many people out there who would love to work for Pixar. And obviously Pixar weren't, you know, Toy Story blew up. So I imagine loads of people at the time were banging on the door going, hey, I want to work for Pixar. How did it work for you? It was really interesting because the time was a little different. Like at the, you have to remember at that time, Disney was king. In mm-hmm. fact, Lion King, what, people, all animators wanted to work at Disney. And I just don't think I was a good enough animal drawer. I didn't have good animal drawing. I, don't think I, was, gonna, I, just, I was not going to get um, picked by Disney. Right. Uh, and what happened was I was doing, I was working in the off season at Will Vinton Studios, which is now called Leica in That's Portland. Right. Yeah. And I'd grown up kind of in that sphere and I had tried to get in. I finally got in working at, at Vinton's and I learned a ton there. And so I was so glad to work at a place, mostly a commercial house at the time. So I, I was learning a lot at the same time. Now, what happened, technically what happened was this opportunity met with preparation. So uh, Toy Story got released in, in November of 95. The following week, for some reason, a Pixar employee escorted the movie and showed it at my school, the Rhode Island School of Design. Wow. From that showing, a friend of mine got an internship. Like they were looking to see if somebody, if students that weren't from CalArts, basically, mm-hmm. if they could be taught the computer. So Scott Clark, he had worked there for 25 years. He was a supervising animator on many of the films, a fantastic animator. He got hired as a, he was an intern. And then that internship the following year i got that internship and he let me sleep on his couch so it was just like the way that that worked is i happened to get in uh when they were looking for people to do toy story 2 direct to video so they really were kind of the people that they hired were from a wide variety of backgrounds not necessarily polished but when i got to the training program everyone else's demo reel was better than mine i mean some of the animators were like main animators of Nightmare Before Christmas. I just had my student film. There were other people's student films and theirs are way better. Mm. But oddly, I think I'm the only one still working there in that whole training class uh, just by like hanging on. I thought early on um, in, in the TV show ER, uh, there was a, a, a Juliana Margulies was, was, a, was an actor. She was on the show and she was in the very first episode. She was supposed to die off, but somehow she like, they kept her around because they liked her. And then she slowly, as the years went on, became like a major player. And so very early on, I'm like, I'm just going to be Juliana Margulies. I wasn't here. Like, I was never the star <laughs> player, but if I can just hang on. Maybe I can be uh, substantial. So that's what happened. I started as an intern in January, 97. And I got there a little early. So they didn't have anything for me to do. So they're like, well, we got this uh, robot character for Toy Story 2, the Zerg. Do you want to do some designs for it? So it was the first thing I got to do was design or help design Zerg. Uh, And so now 
you know, 20, <laughs> 25 years later, <laughs> yeah, I'm like, still yeah. doing the same thing. So, how do you get from being an animator? Because a lot of our listeners are, are in film and they don't they don't have that experience in animation. How do you get from being an animator up to learning to direct animation or or even getting that opportunity? Like, how did you sort of make that transition? Well, there was a long road too. Um, I started, so I I got there. I was an intern in animation, and at the same time when I got there. I had applied to get the job and they had lost my portfolio. It was oh. gone. And I'd spent all this time on this portfolio. Back then you probably didn't have copies either, right? It was very much like you had your... Yeah, it was, oh. I maybe had two and it was a oh. big deal to lose it. But mm. then I got contacted maybe four weeks into my internship from the art department. And they wanted to meet with me and they had stolen my portfolio ah. and oh. they had been trying to contact me but they'd lost somehow my resume had gotten lost. <laughs> so they basically were like, if you want to come work in the art department, um, you're welcome to. And I was like, well, I'm doing animation now, but, but what that allowed me to do was it just let them know that I had some, uh, I had some versatility in their eyes. Mm. So at that time they were, it was a little more, it was, the studio was like 160 people. Now it's, it's like 1300, 1400 now, but it's 160 people. So cross training was a little bit easier. And once we were through Bugs Life, they're like, we got to train more people to be story artists. So they had a story, a master story class from a Joe Ramped. And so Joe Ramped, they picked like 15 people and I was in that story class. And from that story class, then we got to do boards on Toy Story 2. So now I'm boarding on Toy Story 2, two, two years out of school because they just needed people. They needed warm bodies. And then <laughs> I moved on to uh, Monsters and I started doing storyboards for Monsters. Now, um, at the time, it was a lot of like assistant work, which meant cutting things out and gluing things on paper. It was pre-digital and they would videotape each, each image for like 10 seconds and they'd cut it together that way. Uh, and so, like, for example, there was a period of time when Sullivan had glasses on. And so mm -hmm. I had to like draw glasses on every frame and then like, glue them on <laughs> oh to <gosh>. Sullivan <laughs> and they photographed them. And then they changed the story where it didn't have glasses. Mm -hmm. So I had to go and like... <laughs> take all the glasses off and like redraw his eyes and like white out everything. So it was that, that kind of stuff. So now turn of the century, I'm doing boards and animation and basically I'm busy year round because I would just go to each thing after boarding. I would go to start developing the animation uh, pre-production, which is a rather unsung art of working with characters and technical to build the characters and understand why they work. And once I figured that on monsters, uh, I did a little, I jumped a little bit to Nemo and did that and some animation setup. Uh, and then I went to um, Incredibles. Mm. So I was on Incredibles for three and a half years. And that was the best education because Brad was uh, really he, just at that point, he, he was like Gandalf the gray, you know, he, he was going to take the little hobbits and help them get to, uh, to Mordor or whatever. And we <laughs> learned all this stuff from Brad about animation. Like the animation level after that movie went up tremendously because he was applying a lot more specific animation techniques that he'd learned um, from his years at Disney. Mm -hmm. And so I did character setup there and uh, animation. And then after that movie, and I, I should say I did do some directing, some little spots here and there, but mostly now it was like full animation, animation, animation. Mm -hmm. After that movie, Andrew Stanton contacted me, wanted me to be a board artist for Wally because it was going to be a nonverbal film. And he wanted to see what an animator would board. And so basically from that, I was boarding then on Wally 
as a, as a, as a head, as like a main board artist where I'd only really done like junior or assistant work before. And then from that, I transitioned to be the directing animator on Wally. So I was on that film for three and a half years. So now it's 2008 and I have a, I'm like, I, I keep pitching ideas to Andrew about, Oh, we got to do this little welding robot. It was Bernie. Eventually I kept pitching this, like, as you put in the movies, like, why don't we do this as a short and you should direct it. I'm like, okay, great. So that, that I did that film. That was the first short film I did. And then after that, I did that. And then I did some, I kept doing some animation. It's some animation on a toy story three and then directed a Ken's dating tips, which is a little promotional thing. I don't know if you've seen that. That's like a series of shorts with Ken doll, which is a character that I helped pioneer the movement structure for. So basically because I had worked with Andrew, then I had did, did some shorts. I did the toy story uh, tune small fry. And then mm-hmm. that turned into um, uh, toy story of terror. So I would say I, I, I got a chance to do like at every stage of my career, I was given the opportunity and I had to, do something that was just a little bit outside of my comfort zone. And so after that uh, experience, I got eventually hired to, um, from Andrew to, to be the co-director on Finding Dory because mm. he'd really been my mentor and I'd learned so much from him. And then after that, I came to this. So it was a very gradual learning process. And it, I will say it's very unique. There are, I was, I think I'm the only one that's done all of those things. So I was very fortunate to get to do all of those things, but it took a very long time. So you sort of you've mentioned a lot of the storyboarding side, but the I mean, in terms of like the the story development, and because I know, I know like sort of Disney and Pixar that they're incredibly they've got an incredibly tight system in terms of character, story elements, all that side. Was that something that you sort of learned in the background because you were doing all these jobs, or was that that another side that you had to learn as a as a director before you were kind of ready for that? Well, I was learning it being in stories, certainly on Wally front and center, and had been around the development of Toy Story two and Monsters. You 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 see so many of the process of the movies, but it was having to do the short films and create something from nothing from the short films, and then doing like a half hour Toy Story special. Like that's another thing, hmm. like figuring out about trial and error for the writing process. At the same time, I'm working with Andrew and learning about like, you know, I've learned all this stuff about story from him and mm. seeing the process of getting finding Dory where it was and, and learning from that was really, it was just on the job training and like the best, most luckiest sense of the world. I mean, like you can't, it's easy to look back and go, well, Pixar's had tremendous success, but Pixar was nothing from the standpoint of like their success level when I started but I'd always been fascinated with them from their short films. So like I, it's the most fortunate I could have been. And also I've managed to hang on, but it's all through tenacity and constant to self trying to get better. Mm. And I think that so much of the process is getting it wrong. Like you're, you're, you write these stories and then they, you put them up on storyboards and then they, they don't, it doesn't work. And then you have to redo it. But as a director, like when you're starting out, like having the ability to storyboard, having the ability to do character setup, having the ability to do artwork, uh, having the ability to do voice performance, like you need to jumpstart your movie. So I'm boarding stuff myself at the early, early stages in production. I'm fixing boards, like whatever needs to be done as a director, I'm doing it. If mm. something needs to be designed, like I would, I did like ship designs out of Lego for, for, for light just to go, this is what I'm looking for. And I think that, the more you can, it's not a, you ultimately want, you want collaborators where you can delegate to them wholeheartedly, but early on 
in an effort to show people what your vision is. That sounds so corny and so hmm. pretentious, but yeah. in an effort to communicate things, you often have to do wear a few hats. Um, I, I think of it like Superman and Superman, the motion picture. So there's a train and then the tracks are, are broken and Superman has to like lay down the tracks. So just no one, people on the train don't even notice, but Superman's like, yeah, I'm getting a back rub, you know, but that's <laughs> that, that, that kind of feeling for like what you have to do as a director sometimes is fill those gaps in. So when it's done, you're like, how to get done? It's like, hey, who knows? Mm. Uh, but it, the movie usually gets done from uh, a series of very talented people working very hard for a very long time. I suppose you you had a very well, well-rounded well experience because you kind of gone through all those different hoops and you kind of understood the art department and you understood the animation. Uh, so you weren't sort of coming in here and sort of telling people what to do without really that that detailed overview of what it actually entailed. That is, yes. And that's really astute. And what is useful about that is when you get to production, knowing what's hard, what's easy, what you're asking people to do, um, what the potential is technically, those are all useful elements. So I'd say for this film, when we get to each of the departments, I do the best I can to understand what the parameters are and how to push them in a way that's not debilitating, but also get the best work out of it. The, the visuals in this film are extraordinarily high and extraordinarily polished. The animation is very, very polished. Now, the people that are the animators, uh, Dave Devan, the supervisor, I've worked with him for 25 years. Like there's a, there's a level of trust. And as an actor, like, you know, you're getting like a De Niro or a Brando with him, who's then also managing things. And then you have from him, the three, his three directing animators, I have great relationships with each of them. And they have one of the guys is like the brand is, is another, yeah, he's probably that's De Niro to Brando. So we got De Niro and Brando, De Niro leading Brando as a directing animator. We have like Mr. Fix it, who can do everything. Tim, Tim Pixton, who did like most of the socks. And then you have Trevor Shea, who is like the buzz guy who makes buzz look like buzz and knows how to get the best thing for buzz. You need all of those people because the animation is so subtle and it's such a, so hard to do in this film because there's nothing flashy about it. You can't hide behind flashy moments. There's nothing. It's just, grueling i think <laughs> what you said basically what i feel we're getting from you and it's wonderful is the idea of collaboration and the idea of being you're the director and you're leading the ship but you've got all these people around you who totally understand their job but what's wonderful is you're saying you also understand what they have to do and how difficult it is. And that's a huge lesson for any filmmaker out there is if you've done all those other roles, if you've been in the art department, if you've been in a makeup and costume, if you've held the boom, you understand how difficult it is. You understand how difficult writing a script is. And that is so important as a director to not just come in and throw your weight around and say what you want. But from your angle, you know, coming to Lightyear after 25 years at Pixar, and learning from the ground up from all these amazing people. You can tell from the way you talk, your experience and your knowledge is just wonderful to hear. Talk about the characterization of Lightyear then. We're coming on to that as, as the film we're talking about here and the fact that it's coming out on Friday. And this will be a perfect time to drop that trailer. Absolutely. I will read the synopsis while spending. Years attempting to return home, Maroon's space ranger Buzz Lightyear encounters an army of ruthless robots commanded by Zerg who are attempting to steal his fuel source. A year of work for a four-minute flight. Isn't that something? <laughs> 
We're all ready if you are, sir. Well, let's go find out if this... Yeah, we've got a breach in the perimeter. Thank you. Buzz Lightyear mission log. After a full year of being marooned on this planet, our first test flight is a go. Let's get everyone home. Good luck, Captain. We're counting on you! Roger that. There's a star waiting in the sky. Hello, Buzz. Whoa. I am Socks, your personal companion robot. We'd like to come and We're being pursued by a... Just a massive robot. That was utterly terrifying, and I regret having joined you. I can provide sleep sounds if you like. I have several options. Summer night, ocean paradise, whale calls. No, no. White noise is fine. Very well. Good night, Socks. Good night, Buzz. You've gone from working on all these projects throughout the time, but Buzz has been your sort of guy. You've always wanted to. How did you create this and want to take it away from Toy Story in a sense, but keep it Toy Story led, but have its own uh, journey within that? Talk us through how the idea sprung, how it came about. It'd be really fascinating to know. And the responsibility as well. Yeah, huge responsibility there. That's a great question about the responsibility. I will say... Let's start with that saying the, the character of Buzz I've always intellectually understood was popular, mm. but to me, it was always personal and my relationship with Buzz to learn certainly through promoting this film, how much it means to people is a little eye opening. And I'm, it, I think it would be more intimidating if I knew that going into this, um, because my, I always look at it as, as a, as an artist or a, it's not a creator. I didn't create Buzz Lightyear, but it's more like as a as a someone who is, works very closely with that character. I've always related to Buzz. Buzz is a perfectionist. He's very much a company man. He uh, is is very serious and uh, sometimes obtuse. There's <laughs> there, and plus as a toy, he's like a really awesome toy. So you combine all. I really like toys. I like the way because the reason the reason why I like toys, I will say, is that that's how I would relive Star Wars is I would play with, I saw it once in the theater and then you relive it with the toy. So it was very connected yeah. because they're so narratively connected. So for this film, I'd like Buzz a lot. When I started, I worked on Toy Story 2 and I did the second Buzz Lightyear who would do kind of crazy moves. The reason why he would do crazy moves is because I was, ter I was a terrible animator. I could pose things, but I wanted to move from pose to pose as quickly as possible. And that would not, that would allow me to not have to do as much in-betweening, which was very hard for me to do. And I really didn't know what I was doing because I was learning on the job as quickly as I could. Right. So that movement structure is all based on my ignorance. Now, <laughs> wow. comparing that to the animation we're doing today is fascinating and it's much more subtle. But at the time we were, it literally was, the medium was being invented, the medium of, anim, of CG animation. There was 2D animation to learn from, but the tricks you would share with your coworkers, like, how did you do that? 
Uh, well, you could try this. And mm-hmm. there was a sense of discovery that was really quite exciting. So for Lightyear, I knew I wanted to tell the story about the backstory of um, Buzz Lightyear, but I never was satisfied with the way he was treated uh, in his universe because I always felt like it was all tongue in cheek and jokey. Mm-hmm. And the world that I imagined was much more like Star Wars, where like, oh no, the force is real. You know, this thing is real. And this is not, I didn't imagine sci fi fantasy, but. In like an aliens or an alien or even the tone of like Raiders of the Lost Ark, like there is comedy, but it's not comedy that undercuts the seriousness of the world. One of the things that I learned from Brad Bird for Incredibles was he always wanted us to animate the characters in a way that they would be concerned for their own safety. And he cited probably first and foremost, Sean Connery, but also Harrison Ford. Uh, Sean Connery in, say, Goldfinger, where he looked like he was concerned, like he might die. He was definitely like outmatched by Oddjob in in Fort Knox, things like that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of this in the acting. And so you have to create everything in animation so that you believe it. And it's so much work because everything in the movie is created. You can't go and buy a prop. You have to build everything. So we're creating this world. And then you need to have the characters infused into that world and be concerned for their safety. And so I knew I wanted to have an action film and make an action movie along the tone of those movies that I grew up with. It's easy to go, yeah, we want to make another Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, well, they've been trying since 1981 and no one's done it. Mm-hmm. You know, but, that, but at least that's the thing to shoot for as far as a tone. Or, or, or like, wouldn't it be great if you could have a movie like that? Right. Uh, so at least knowing that's where we're going and then going, well, I, then selling the idea, we're going to, why don't we just watch, make the Buzz Lightyear movie? Because at Pixar, they go, yeah, you finished, we finished uh, Dory and, and they were like, what do you want to do? And I'm like, well, I really, uh, I like to do an, an action film. You got to. You're selling like to sell an action thriller, especially at that time, mm-hmm. where Pixar mostly makes more buddy movies or like there's a lot of like personal stories of how their parents didn't want them to be an artist, mm-hmm. you know, like that kind of thing. And that was never my experience. So I wanted to tell a very personal story, uh, both about Buzz, but then also, what do I know? Well, my parents wanted me to be an artist and, you know, the, the family business wasn't shoes and I didn't want to be a musician. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't that kind of thing. So I figured I've been working on these movies 25 years. And when I started, I was 21 and now I'm, you know, 47 now. Older. Yeah. So you just, you get old making these movies. And I noticed these movies take four or five years. I would, I would go home every year to Portland, Oregon. Oh, and I would see okay. Things change. I would see people get older and, the just buildings come up or buildings go down and no one seemed to care. And so it was like, I was going through this time traveling. I was time jumping and that's where the time dilation for the movies are all very personal. Like that was making movies at Pixar is what star command is in my mind. So then this is a story about a person who is out of time or is surrounded by younger people and he feels like he's from a different era. There's a Rip Van Winkle aspect to that. And that's in a sense how I feel about now working at the studio for so long. Many of the people I started with are gone. Mm-hmm. A lot of my friends are, are have moved on. It's having to forge these new relationships with younger people, which is fine. They're very talented, but the, mm-hmm. the challenges of that um, and the, 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 the feelings of that and wanting to the survivor guilt of it or the, um, you know, make the movie, get the thing done. Like that's it's, I don't think I could have done this movie anytime earlier 
like everything I needed to learn, I, I learned along the way. But I don't know. That's that's the personal angle for it for me for this movie. I really love the fact that you've you've made your own journey in, into into a movie. Like you know, it, people do do grow up and and people drift away, and and so much happens just to get one movie made, let alone a whole career. And that that there is that real sense of like nostalgia that I think is is very relatable to. And and you know what you're saying about struggle as well. Like when you watch superhero movies and the superhero has no weaknesses and it's too easy for them you just immediately switch off because what makes these films relatable you know even the star wars which i watched hundreds of times growing up it was because it was this feeling that you could do anything but you're also hopelessly outmatched and it, it gives people that hope that they can do anything even if they're hopelessly outmatched and I, I think you did a very good job of getting that personal and the the grand sort of connected together into into light yeah i suppose that is an interesting really interesting point is is w- when was the moment it got green lit because i imagine here certainly at pixar you're developing lots of ideas and let's see what works let's test stuff let's test ideas was light year something that took a while to sort of find the story find the the actually what it is now and this brilliant story that you've created was as many different iterations when was the moment you got the green light and did it feel like a okay now i've got the green light if you know what i mean or maybe there is no green light maybe talk us through that process there at pixar a little bit about how these you know films actually do get made well i think i came up with the idea in summer late summer early september 2016 and i pitched it maybe in october okay so not long after dory it was after dory it was like it was like well and the, the pitch was really simple it was like what was the movie that mandy saw that made it want to buzz light your toy and why couldn't we just make that movie? I mean, mm-hmm. a straightforward sci-fi action adventure starring Buzz Lightyear, like the Buzz Lightyear adventure. Right, I did. And there was a thing because Pixar has had so much success and so many of the movies are so emotional. And so like, I, I, it was not a response to that, but I was like, can we just make something that's just pure nerd fun? I guess that was mm. just where, where it was like going to be toy oriented from the standpoint of was very the things that we like about toys is what would be in the movie. For example, I was always fascinated by the Batman problem. So Batman, they make a Batman toy. There's Batman. Okay, you got that toy. Then they got what about Volcano Batman? He's red. You're like, no, no. Okay, that's not part of the story, or that's never. Or Electro Batman. You're like, now he's blue, and you're like, no, it's not. So this idea that Batman had all these different suits that you never saw in the show that made no sense. Mm-hmm. My thinking was. How, what if you did have a million different suits and they actually did make sense? And why would that be narratively needed? Mm. And so that's where a lot of the different outfits that Buzz has in the first act is all based around that idea. Or Buzz has many outfits in the movie, but it's all narratively based. Because thinking about this as, as just for a moment as a product, there's a reason why products exist because people want to buy them or people want to see them that way. And there's, there's a, an interesting psychology to why do we gravitate towards certain things certainly with the action figures are an icon of a story and so you want to make that story element part of that and have mm-hmm. visual interest within those designs so i pitched the first thing and they were like this is great and so i knew from the first pitch that 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 it wasn't a green light but it was like there's it's saleable yes well well the saleability is useful because it might mean it gets made like it, you, you, you know that you you need that kind of thing. You need you need to be the moving train when you're making a movie, mm. and so that was a moving train. Then the next step was like, what's the story? And that's where I pitched time dilation, and so that that got a little bit further. And then it was, and but but there was so much of a backlog production wise 
like the things weren't in a hurry. So the development process was maybe a little longer than it needed to be in the beginning, but that was mostly because of the capability of the studio at the time and the transition doing more work. And anyway, but I used all that time to educate myself about the movie I was making. Now the studio knew how to make two kinds of movies, the buddy movie, as I said, or the disapproving parent movie that those predominantly a lot of the movies fall into the, just my mind is cat, like likes to categorize things. Mm-hmm. So the way I saw it was, it's not that structure. It's a, it's a thriller. So I need to be the expert on thrillers. Mm. So I started watching thrillers and I wrote down everything that happened in the thriller. Wow. And then I started mapping each of those and I wanted to become my own al- algorithm for understanding what needed to happen when for thrillers and what worked and what didn't. And I came up with a unifying theory uh, about the thriller and I turned it into like a whole PowerPoint presentation. Nice. Um, internally, it was called the bag of help. And it was all based around how every time in a movie uh, there is a bag of help that is a character is, is a character moment where they get like a, like literally sometimes it's a bag, usually it's red and that bag helps them on their journey to it in born identity. Mm-hmm. He goes to the bank, he gets his passport and he's got that whole safe deposit box. He pulls it out in a red bag. I mean, this is like, it's everywhere. If you, once you see it, you can't not see it. So I started seeing the matrix for, for the thriller. And I started like quantifying all this stuff because I knew if I knew it better than anyone, that was going to be my defense when they go, what about this? And I would stop me from getting pulled off into making a structure of what was familiar for the studio. That's the only thing I had. I had to know that I had to understand it for myself. You became the pioneer. Yeah. Well, I I just, I need to know it so that I could understand it because I needed to educate myself because I was not familiar with those as much as I could have been. So once I would, I would recommend that if there's any filmmaker that wants to understand what they're making is watch a bunch of those movies, write down everything that happens and stuff will start to occur to you of the rhythms and the, the things that happen. Now that only gets you structure. It doesn't get you narrative emotional drive, which is separate. So just like Radio Rahim has the love and the hate, you need to bring it with structure and also emotional hooks. The structural understanding can can help guide you of uh, figure out what's superfluous in your story. But your emotional hook is what's most important. Mm. And how did you find that then within, you know, light? Yeah. Well, the emotional hook was really I wanted to be based around this feeling of the dangers of nostalgia. Mm-hmm. I feel like so much of my stuff of my youth. Um, now, uh, culturally is being mined for nostalgia without any, conte- any new context or any new comment. It's often shown as a way to have connectivity, but without any context. And it's often to the detriment of the thing that's used to show. Like it, it, it kind of cheapens everything. It's like hearing a favorite song in like a, in like a, like a detergent commercial. You know, so you recognize it, but it doesn't give you anything new. And, it, and, and somehow, it, it, you know, not, not anytime you hear the song, you're like, oh, detergent. Mm. So, um, <laughs> so that was really, that, that was my, that, that, that was what I wanted to say was about nostalgia and the dangers of looking back and looking forward. And then the, the, the details of it would come into play. One of the biggest challenges we had was that our buzz was going to be surrounded. I always wanted buzz to have this, this buzz gets a family. was always the idea. And Buzz is going to meet these new people. Well, he doesn't meet them so till late in the movie. And we have so much setup in the beginning mm. uh, to tell the time dilation. So there was just a lot of exposition. And then you need to have connectivity. And ultimately, the solution and the emotional hook for the movie was Alicia. And Alicia was many things. 
uh, or the, what Alicia solves is a sense of nostalgia or at least the past or is the emotional hook of what he's missing. And so we solved that problem in different ways in the past. But once we came up with Alicia, that was really our key. And so, yeah, I worked it was basically Jason Headley, the screenwriter, and I was directing and we would come up with there was a bunch of stuff when he came on. We had and then he helped codify uh, with the turnip and Alicia. And so there's just, it was, it's a long process. It's, it really isn't recommended for anyone that isn't completely obsessed. <laughs> I think or most filmmakers are completely obsessed. I think yeah. that's how we get through it. Right. I think that's how we do it. But I think what's so lovely about Pixar and especially reading the books on Pixar as well, is that you're all kind of this wonderful team and you all help each other. So let's say yourself and um, Jason, you are there writing the script, but and then you'll bounce ideas off everyone else at, at Pixar and they say, well, no, that doesn't work with that. So you've got this wonderful team, which a lot of filmmakers don't have most of the time, especially if they're writing it on their own. That must be a real, benefit right to know that you have these other people or is it sometimes you just want to get on with it i don't know talk, talk us through that well the other people is i mean we're not we're human i mean it's not mm. it's not it's, it's a big happy family at the same time you want to be the sibling that's doing well right sure. you know you're, you're showing it <laughs> but you're really like that's their, just your first audience you know they've they're going to tell you their, their job is to tell you is not to tell you, you did a good job their job is to tell you what you did wrong and so you need to, in, in effort to succeed, you need to surround yourself with people whose opinions you trust, who have, who are invested in your success. And so that's, you need to find your own team within the studio. And also you, there's the, there's the studio at large, having the relationship that I had with Andrew uh, and Pete doctor, that's essential and uh, to, to making the movie, but at the same time, nuts and bolts on the ground, the team that I have is all, they need to be stepping back to look at the overall picture and yet, um, give me the honest feedback. Do you ever have moments where, because I mean, in, in in sort of traditional film, there's always, you're always thinking about the budget or we can't physically do this because we can't have three jumbo jets explode on the ground, in, you know, and we can't afford the CGI for it. What are the limitations of like making a movie like this? Were there things that you've wanted to do which physically couldn't be done or were just pushing the budget too much or would have taken too much time that you had to sort of reimagine? Yes is the short answer. But for me, I try to be budget conscious all the time. And what that means is design a narrative that doesn't have 50 people in the shot the whole time. You'll notice a narrative allows for some scenes that have fewer characters in them. That's useful because I know anytime I have a scene with one character on there, then the animator can really go to town on that and move on to the next shot. So like the idea of budget and scope is something like I'm trying to give you something like a, think of it like a Western town set where you have the facade of something. It looks like a whole town, but it's not really built out. So the whole time you're trying to find a way to maximize the budget. It's that's, that's a constant struggle. You need to figure out how to choose your, you know, it's like, like a spaceship. You're like diverting your shields to your, your phasers. I mean, a good example of something we couldn't do is like in the time montage, I would have liked to have different Ivan consoles plugged into the con like different shapes. Mm. Like that's a very um, time consuming modeling problem and shading problem. And in the art of book, you can see some of the designs, of the other consoles. That was not something that ended up being worth it for the movie. It's little things like that, but ultimately there are no, everything was designed 
to fit. And at every stage, we'd say for effects, a lot of effects in the movie, more effects in this movie than any film Pixar has done to date. Now, what we would do is I would sit and watch the sequence with uh, the lead, the, the, the Bill Wattrall and uh, Rochelle, who were the, the supervis- supervising um, effects person and the, and the manager for effects. And we talk about what was most important. Things can get expensive. Like if you're walking through fog and the fog is wafting around the character, mm-hmm. that's going to cost money. Do you, would you rather have that or like a laser blast and explosions? Like, well, let's, the audience is going to want the explosions. So let's, let's spend the money on that. So you're always, you're always doing that. And that's not, that's just the reality of it. Like the movie has a fidelity to it because of the compromises that we made. And we put the money on the screen and you can't, there are, places there's some seams that if you're really looking you could see but we tried to maximize everything so that it's on the screen amazing amazing and it's totally totally worked it's a brilliant movie you should be very very proud very of much. what you've achieved uh, honestly i can't wait to see what you do next this is it's a joy and i think what's great is you've taken sort of pixel like you say in that different direction you've pushed that envelope and it's it's very impressive so well done angus mclean thank you so much for your time yeah thank you so much for the chat great questions yeah no problem at all we'd love to chat more with you and next time we will for sure <laughs> we'll demand that but uh, yeah again thank you for your time thank you thanks so much so there we have it that was Angus McLean what a guy he was right Dom what a guy he had so much knowledge for us there for you guys to mm. learn I thought that you, we could take so much of that into non-animated feature films is there a word yeah. for them live action and you can take that into your live action feature films of course you can uh, I really enjoyed that chat I could have chatted much longer with him. And apologies, it's a shorter episode, but he's a busy man. And uh, sometimes... So are we. So are we. So are we, actually. (laughs) We really are. So listen, you can go out there and make your film, right, Dom? You can. You can go and make your animation, right, Dom? You can also do that. You can also go out there and make your TV series, whatever it is. Even if you want to fly that spaceship like Buzz Lightyear, you can fly that spaceship. You can. And we didn't even talk about Socks, the fantastic new character that is great for this film. He's so funny. And you can do that too. Just remember who your audience is. Be prepared. Write your script to the best of you can and share it with your friends. That's something I felt we learned from Angus there was collaboration is key. What I feel is lovely about this podcast. And someone like the primo host like Dom is, I can share <laughs> uh, my work with him and he will read it and give me feedback straight away. And, and especially with the films we make, he will watch them and it's the same with all our hosts and the same with the team we have here find that tribe around you uh, and then it really does help it really does make a difference when you're trying to make your films and if you're lucky enough to rise up and do well remember to send that elevator deck down again deck down deck down deck down, deck down. down. that was primo host speaking there <laughs> about deck down i don't know should we do a poll who should be primo host no polls. No polls. No, no, no polls. polls intended. No. <laughs> Wholly unacceptable. <laughs> Disney Pixar's Lightyear is out this Friday, the 17th of June. Take your friends. It's a blast. Jokes aside about the, the Primo host thing. <laughs> someone, at, someone at Giles' birthday party did say, Oh, you're the voice of the filmmakers podcast. They did. So I'm just going to drop that it one in. That, that, that's an actual. That's an actual live event. No, that and that was Sophie Roger, the lovely Sophie Roger, Andrew Rogers' wife, Andrew Beard Rogers. Why do people not not include Beard in his name? He's got a beard. 
he's famous for it. Let's just call him what well, call him what he is. Most people call him Beard, but I never did when I met him because that was never the I was introduced to him as Andrew. So well, I think it should be. It should be. Most people still call him Beard. When when I'm ringing up production houses asking for kit hire. You say, oh, Beard sent me. Go out there and make your films, people. Thank you for listening. Yeah. You're all amazing. We love yeah. you all for listening. It- Especially you. Especially you. See you next week. See you next Tuesday. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.